3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the sole lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bungaran people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders, past, present and extended respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience all listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. How are we this morning, Sonera? Good morning, Grace. Good morning, everyone. I'm good. How is how are you, Grace? Good, good, good. How are we all doing? How has been your weekend? Yeah, not bad. It was uh, a lot of football action going on. We're just heating up to footy's final, footy finals now, Sonera. So it's going to uh, turn more interesting this week as Melbourne will come alive with uh, all different sporting events happening, which is just great for me, Sonera. Which is, uh, that's probably the most non-Melbourne Un-Melbournean thing about me is that I grew up here, but I, I never watch AFL. <laughs> Fair enough, Sonia. It's all good. It's it's everyone's different. Nah, cup of tea. I don't think it's just a Melbourne thing. It's just if you don't really like sports, <laughs> that's then true. You, yeah. So if you don't really like sports, but then yeah, that's just good pretty luck much. to whoever's playing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good good way of putting it, Sonia. That's a great way of putting it. Anyway, listeners, uh, oh, you're going to be listening to 855am on your dial through Wednesday breakfast. Uh, we have got a big show coming up, Sonia. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll be uh, hearing about Iranian revolution. Uh, we'll be speaking to an, uh, Matthew Sussex, uh, Sussex about the Russia, which is big at the moment. And you have something up first. Um, yes, I'll. Uh, well, this week's uh, National Child Protection Week, and that means we're going to be discussing um, child maltreatment and how that affects people later in life and how common it is with Professor Daryl Higgins from the Institute of Child Protection Studies at ACU. Um, How about you, Grace? Yeah, so after that, we're going to be hearing the second part of Democracy Now! episode about the documentary film Coop 53. Part 1 was aired last week, so if you want to listen to that, you can head to our breakfast page at Wednesday Breakfast. But yeah, today is going to be about the second ep- the second part of Democracy Now! Talking about the film Coup 53. The film is about the coup d'etat, coup d'etat against the former president of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, in 1953. So yeah, we'll be looking forward to that. And then we're going to have Sal, who is an Iranian un- Iran union activist where we discuss the documentary piece by Democracy Now! about the 70th anniversary of the 1953 coup. So, yeah. Yeah, we got a lot happening. And then after 8 o'clock, we will be discussing uh, all things Russia with Dr. Matthew Sussex, uh, an associate professor at Griffith Asia Institute, Griffith University, Queensland. But for all that now, we're going to go to headlines. So, now take it away. Yes, first up, the federal government's decision to block a number of flights from Qatar Airways into Australia will be scrutinised under a new parliamentary inquiry. The request for the inquiry has gone through because of the opposition's motion winning the majority of votes by par- uh, in Parliament by a single vote. 
The inquiry will investigate the government's actions relating to any proposals received in the last year for additional services to Australia's major airports, which could have potentially affected things beyond the extent of the Qatar Airways issue. The inquiry's committee will hand down the results from the investigation in October. Now, hay, fee hay fever sufferers, not good news. The hay fever season in Victoria has started earlier than usual this spring. Warmer and drier conditions are to blame, largely due to an expected shift from La Nina to El Nino weather patterns. Pollen count ex expert Edwin Lemgaria said it is really important that people are taking extra precautions earlier than usual to make sure they're not being caught out. Yep, and lastly for me, a faculty, the Esther Foundation, uh, which has been which has been a rehabilitation facility accused of performing exorcism and gay conversions, applied for a promised funding, which was a month after the funding has been announced. Freedom of information documents have showed that the health department rushing to get information after the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced a four million dollars for the group in the lead up to the 2019 election. The foundation promised to help young women with drug, alcohol and mental health issues. A West Australian parliamentary inquiry heard of ex quoted extreme religious practices at the ASF Foundation's Perth Centre, according to The Guardian. While the inquiry has heard the Western Australian authorities heard of some allegations in 2018, there's no evidence that any politician or federal health department's officials knew about them when the grant was awarded. The federal health department was first of allegations in early 2020. So yeah, earlier this day, the Australian National Audit Office found the grant, along with others awarded under the $2 billion Community Health and Hospital Program, known as CHHP, was unlikely to be unlawful. Yeah, and that's all for news headline this morning. Great. Now, we'll be back after a few announcements. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel, yet gas exploration by sonic explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. 
Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR at 8.55am. And now going on to our National Child Protection Week segment. About a third of Australians have been exposed to maltreatment as a child in their life, which can range from exposure to domestic and emotional abuse to neglect. And those who do suffer from child maltreatment have experienced more than one form of it. These are just some of the find these are just some of the findings from a recent landmark study which surveyed people who were 16 years of older or older all around Australia about their experiences with child maltreatment. As National Child Protection Week was kicked off this Monday, I was joined by Professor Daryl Higgins, who is the director of the Institute of Child Protection Studies at Australian Catholic University and the author of the Australian Child Maltreatment Study, to talk about the impacts and proposed solutions to prevent child maltreatment in Australia. For starters, can you define what maltreatment is? So child maltreatment refers to two things. It's both acts of commission, so where parents or caregivers um, or, or others are in ga- acting in, um, in a way that is harmful to the well-being of uh, children and young people. Um, but it also includes acts of omission, so what we might think of as neglect, so failing to provide um, environments that are... Um, leading to the well-being and safety of uh, of children but across all of those different um, acts of omission and commission um, there's broadly five different types of child maltreatment that um, researchers and um, child welfare authorities recognize globally and they are physical abuse emotional abuse um, neglect um, exposure to domestic or family violence and sexual abuse Yes, and I was also wondering how much um, information or research into child maltreatment there was before this study. Um, like, can you give me some context in how your research was conducted, and like, you know, what kind of information there was before this? Mm. So, in Australia, um, we have uh, good data sources around what our child protection departments, our statutory authorities that are run by the states and territories are doing in response to harm that comes to their attention. That's not prevalence data. What that's telling us about is service level activity. So how many cases meet the criteria for a state or territory child welfare authority to intervene in the private lives of families because of a safety risk. And so there are thresholds um, that need to be met for a department to even investigate, let alone take action. You know, so there has to be a failure of parents to care for. So if you've got one parent who's acting in a protective and careful manner and another who isn't, 
then the Child Protection Department doesn't get involved. Um, so there are some unique features of our, of our statutory child protection departments. Um, we have obviously mandatory reporting um, across all jurisdictions in Australia, although there are some variability in terms of who is mandated and about what types of harm they are mandated to report against. So for example, in my home state of Victoria, it's harm relating to sexual abuse and physical abuse, but not other types of harm. Whereas in the Northern Territory, um, everybody is mandated to respond in relation to all types of harm towards children. So there's incredible variability. But regardless of that, state and territory departments still have a responsibility to act in relation to um, uh where there is harm to a child or serious risk of harm relating to the four grounds that um, are stated in legislation in each of the jurisdictions. And that relates to emotional abuse, emo harm from emotional abuse, harm from sexual abuse, harm from physical abuse and harm from neglect. So exposure to domestic violence, while it might be recorded by a department, isn't actually a, a harm type that they can take action on. So they would be taking action because a child is at risk of emotional abuse. And the reason for that emotional abuse might be because of domestic violence. So we haven't had um, population level data about Australians' experiences of all five types of maltreatment up until now. We've only had that service level activity. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that if it's not obvious, it's um, really easy for children to fall um, through the cracks and experience maltreatment. And it's mentioned in the study that two out of three of those who have reported maltreatment have experienced multiple forms of it. Can you tell me what are the most common forms of maltreatment? Yeah, yeah. So what we found in our study that the most frequently reported type of harm was exposure to domestic violence. So almost 40% of adults 16 and over in Australia have experienced exposure to domestic violence during their childhood up to age 18. So that was our most frequent one. Um, the second um, most frequent type was um, physical abuse. So we found that physical abuse was experienced by 32% um, of the population. Then emotional abuse was the next most frequent one at 30.9% um, of, of the population. Um, the, the second last type was sexual abuse at 28.5% of the population. And then the least common type was neglect at 8.9% of the population. Yeah, so as you said, like, you know, it's about a third of Australians who have been exposed to maltreatment. Do you know why it's that common? Well, it, it's actually more common once you aggregate across all of those different types. So on average, about one third of Australians are experiencing one of those different types. But the reality is they co-occur. And so um, approximately 40% um, of the population have experienced two 
or more types. Um, because if you added all of those figures together of, you know, 39% plus 32% plus 28%, etc., it comes to more than 100%. And the reason for that is that risks tend to go together. And so we see that some children are experiencing um, not just one type, but two or more types. Um, so in fact, we found that um, three four or five different types of um, child maltreatment were experienced by almost one in four Australians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's um, lots of people are affected by this. And I was also wondering how Australia compares to the rest of the world for this. Is there any data that that kind of show where we are? It's tricky to make comparisons with um, other countries because the methodologies that are used in other prevalence studies where they do exist um, are quite different. Um, and we developed our own measures. So we used um, an existing survey tool that has been used previously, the Juvenile Victimization Questionnaire. We used only some of the measures and we improved them. So for example, we went back to the literature and said, how is maltreatment conceptualized in the research and what is the best way of measuring that? And so while the juvenile victimization questionnaire was the best one that was available, we made additions and um, had some new items um, added into it and changed the wording on a few of the questions. So we don't have direct comparable data with um, all of the um, methods that we used. But in general, I think what we found was um, a fairly similar picture to what other prevalent studies um, in North America and the UK have found, um, although our rates of um, emotional abuse were perhaps a little higher than has been typically found in, in other studies, and exposure to domestic violence as well, I think, was, was higher. And what effect can maltreatment have on children? Well, that's one of the um, things that our study is unique on. So uh, it's not a study of children, but of adults. And so what we were looking at the long-term impacts, both in terms of mental health, but also what we call health risk behaviours. And we found um, really strong relationships between experiences of child maltreatment and um, those two um, groups of um, impacts. So typically we found that um, mental health um, disorders were, um, they were almost double the risk of, of having a mental um, illness if you had experienced child maltreatment. So 48% um, of those who had experienced child maltreatment met one of the criteria for um, one of the four mental disorders that we um, assessed in our study. And that compared with just over 20% of those who um, did not experience maltreatment. So, you know, a really strong um, correlation there uh, with those uh, mental disorders, particularly the, the four that I mentioned, uh, um, depression, so major depressive disorder, anxiety, so generalised anxiety disorder, um, severe alcohol use, and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so massive differences in that. And then in terms of the um, health risk 
behaviours, we found similar kind of patterns, particularly strong ones for um, cannabis dependence, for um, self-harm in the in the past 12 months, um, and suicide attempts in the last 12 months, um, very strongly related to um, child maltreatment. So particularly cannabis dependence, so more than six times the likelihood of cannabis dependence if you had been uh, maltreated as a child. So the reverse of that, it's almost rare for you to be um, dependent on cannabis in adulthood if you have had no experience of child maltreatment. And what can be done to ensure that children are safe from maltreatment? Like, are there any prevention strategies at the moment? Yeah, that's one of the things that we've been really focused on as a team is communicating our knowledge because I think for a start, Australia has thought of child maltreatment as being um, a problem that we see in the child protection statistics from our state and territory child protection authorities, not something that is a, um, a much more common um, and frequently experienced um, dimension of childhood. And so our data from adults across the lifespan from age 16 and over have showed us that this is a typical experience for Australians to have had child maltreatment. So that's really put our attention on the need for prevention. Unfortunately, although we have a number of strategies in Australia, none of them are directly focused on um, prevention um, across all of the different types of abuse and neglect. And so um, I have been calling along with um, a number of colleagues, including um, the National Association for the Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect this week in Child Protection Week, who have joined us in calling for a national summit to prevent um, child maltreatment. So we want investment in the things that we know from other research works. And of course, one of the major areas there is about supports for parents to improve the quality and the capacity of their parenting, to be able to parent safely um, using non-violent, using emotion-focused um, strategies that are effective, that work, um, but we need to be able to have those um, parenting services and supports delivered at scale across the population if we're going to turn this around. It's not a niche thing that should just be delivered through child protection services. We actually have to have it in places where families are, where parents are, um, where children are already attending. So that means schools, early childhood centres. It means um, uh, community health clinics, um, maternal and child health services. That's the place where families are going. Um, and that's the place where we can have contact points to be able to build the capacity of parents to be able to care safely for their children. Um, some of the strategies around prevention of child sexual abuse are a little bit different, though, of course, parenting capacity is a really big one. But we also need to have a focus on uh, teaching respectful relationship, consent and quality, comprehensive sexuality education. Um, we can't do check sexual abuse prevention unless children um, know about their bodies and their right to safety um, from harm from other adults. But even more importantly, as our data have shown, from other adolescents, they were one of the um, more frequent um, 
uh, instigators of harm to uh, to children of a sexual nature. And so we need to be equipping young people with knowledge about um, what is appropriate behaviour with their peers um, before we can even expect someone who might be at risk of harm to be able to speak up and seek help. And just one last question before we go. Do you think that things are getting better regarding child abuse and maltreatment? Well, that's one of the benefits of our study because we had um, so many participants across all different ages. We were able to look at um, kind of changes over time through those different age cohorts. And what we found was that there are some areas that are improving. So physical abuse was one of the ones where we saw some reductions in prevalence of physical abuse with our younger cohort compared to the um, older Australians in our study. So that's some good news. We we also found it in relation to some forms of sexual abuse. So, for example, we saw um, reductions in um, the, the number of um, sexual abuse incidents that were occurring at the hands of family members. So our prevention strategies in relation to um, familial sexual abuse seem to be heading in the right direction. Unfortunately, what we've seen, though, is increases in other types of abuse and neglect over time um, that seem to be offsetting some of those gains. So we've seen increases in exposure to domestic and family violence um, and increases in emotional abuse. So we really are calling for um, not only turbocharging our um, sexuality education and um, prevention strategies around um, consent and um, respectful relationship education, but um, around preventing emotional abuse. And so, as I said earlier, that really involves um, working with parents directly, helping them realise that um, using coercive uh, strategies as a parent is harmful to children. So not only do we see the increase in um, the prevalence in our youngest cohort of emotional abuse, but we saw right across all of the um, participants that the two types of child maltreatment that were most strongly related to mental health and health risk behaviours across uh, the lifespan were sexual abuse and emotional abuse. So we really have to get our prevention strategies right around addressing those two types of harm if we're going to turn around the um, epidemic that we're seeing of mental health problems um, across the population. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Daryl. Um, it was, it's really important to speak about these issues, especially raise awareness about them all the time, not just during National Child Protection Week. Um, just before we go, do you have anything else that you'd want the audience to know? Yeah, look, I suppose get behind our voice of calling for governments to come together and have a national summit on child maltreatment prevention. We need to hear the voice of parents. We need to hear the voice of community. We need to hear the voice of those um, service providers who have the skill set to be able to um, bring about um, a prevention agenda at scale right across the population. We need to elevate the conversation so our politicians are hearing from the community that we actually 
don't think that it's acceptable to have the high levels of maltreatment that we've uncovered in the Australian child maltreatment study. Um, so we need to um, we need to vote with our feet um, and make sure that our politicians hear from us that this is what we expect. And we need to have those with solutions to be able to come to the table and say, here's what my sector can do. So we want you know leaders within the early childhood sector, within schools, um, uh, within the health sector, you know, to be coming forward and saying, here's what my sector can do to support parents um, and to really drive a prevention agenda. So please um, step up and uh, let's let's be all part of this solution for the next generation of Australians. And you were just listening to Professor Daryl Higgins, the Director of the Institute of Child Protection Studies at ACU, talking about child maltreatment this National Child Protection Week. Higgins, along with NAPCAN, the association which focuses on preventing child abuse, have called on the government to host a national summit to prevent child maltreatment. More information about this, as well as the landmark study, will be in on our show notes at 3cr.org.au slash Wednesday-breakfast. If you have found the last segment to be disturbing or have been affected by these things before, you can seek help by calling um, Beyond Blue at 1300 224636 or Lifeline at 13 11 14. Um, yes, and now on to Grace. Yeah, we're going to be playing a song. This is a Greek song, Good Morning Greek song, by, uh, which is a Happy Day version by Costa Doxas. Και 
και στη συντροφιά μας κάτσε τα προβλήματα σου ασέ ο καιρός με την τζολάκι καθημερινή συνήθεια θα σου λέμε την αλήθεια Καλημέρα Πάντα αισιοδοξία Χαπί, 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 And that was Good Morning. And that was Happy uh, Good Morning, Happy Division by Costa Doxas. So now we're going to be heading into a segment about Democracy Now! So for those who are listening last week, we're going to be hearing the second part of Democracy Now! episode about the documentary film Coup 53. The film is about the coup d'etat against the former president of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh in 1953 and how the overthrowing of Mossadegh to return Mohammad Reza Shah as Iran's leader dominoed into Iran's anti-Shah sentiments and the Islamic revolution, the latter of which the country is still dealing with today. The film, Code 53, directed by Taki Amirani, explores the involvement of US and UK forces in driving the coup. Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! talks to Amirani and Iranian historian Ervan Abrahamian about the less publicized involvement of England. Let's take a listen. Uh, Tagi Amirani, I wanted to ask you uh, the lessons for today, especially for people in other parts of the world about these coups, is the way that the British government and the US government often try to uh, mask their actions uh, by promoting so-called demonstrations or uh, uprisings in the street against uh, uh, governments that they wanted overthrown, particularly, I think, in the Iranian situation, the use of uh, uh, radical Islamic clerics. Uh, uh, for instance, there was at the time uh, an Ayatollah Kashami, uh, uh, who had been uh, Kashani, who had been a collaborator with the, the Nazis during World War II, but then was utilized by the British uh, uh, and the Americans to stir up protest against the Mossadegh regime. And of course, there was a young cleric, uh, 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 Khomeini, a follower of Kashami, who was in the street protesting against Mossadegh at the time. Could you talk about how the use of uh, the uh, by the United States and the British, because of course they went on to do it in Afghanistan against Sadat in Egypt and others, to use radical Islamic clerics as a means to attack modernists or progressive political leaders? My enemy's enemy is always my friend. And in fact, Ayatollah Kashani was very much on Mossadegh's side. They were, they were working together uh, in trying to nationalize oil and stand up to the British. They parted ways uh, in July uh, 1952 in, in, in a huge demonstration when Mossadegh resigned. 
because he wanted to uh, have more control in the executive power and wanted the Shah to be just a simple sim- symbolic monarch. Uh, but they parted ways because in Karshani's eyes, Mossadegh was a hungry dictator and trying to keep too much control in his hands. Um, the melting pot of the currents against Mossadegh was multifaceted. The, 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 the mob was created, the, the, the religious community turned against him. Uh, of course, uh, agents were on the ground. Bribery was obviously a key point. The press were bought. These are the key ingredients of any coups. And, and once you've got those key elements in place, including assassination of key allies, uh, it's a repeat and rinse process. Uh, uh, I'm... I don't have information of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, a young Khomeini, being in the crowd, but I know in Oliver Stone's series, uh, The Secret History of the United States, or The Untold History of the United States, it is mentioned. Uh, but there is a lot of debate about the, the conflict between Kashani and, uh, and Khomeini, uh, sorry, uh, Kashani and uh, Mossadegh. He certainly expressed delight uh, at the fall of Mossadegh post-coup, uh, and he had ambitions about being the leader of the Muslim world, not just in Iran. Uh, but Mossadegh had his, has his, had his, he'd written his own death sentence the moment he nationalized oil. The British decided he had to go that moment. In fact, we have people in our interviews uh, from End of Empire saying the moment he came into office, we knew we had to get rid of him. Uh, the, the bogeyman of communism was exactly that. We have documents which uh, we will put out in our new sequel. We are making a coda about what happened to Coup 53 since its release called Coup 53.1. And in that, we will show these documents where the Americans are discussing with the British uh, whether they'll come in and join the coup. And they're discussing share of the oil, basically saying, yeah, we'll help you if you can have a slice of you know, Iranian oil, which is exactly what happened post-coup in the consortium that was formed. Uh, in which the American oil companies walked away with 40%. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it's still debated. It's still a hot topic. Of course, the impact's still with us. We're living with the consequences of the coup. And, uh, and it, of course, it emboldened the CIA uh, to go out and do it again in Guatemala. In fact, this year we are marking the 50th anniversary of the Chilean coup, uh, Pinochet replacing Allende, like the Shah replaced Mossadegh. Uh, history is not the past. The past is not the past. And we're still living with the ripples of this disastrous event. Tagi Amirani, if you can talk about specifically the U.S. role, you have this fascinating interview. What is it? Um, uh, the interview with Kermit Roosevelt, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's grandson, who is an official within the CIA, says he takes a couple suitcases filled with money, a million dollars, but actually it only cost him 60000 uh, But talk about what he did in Iran and doing this at the behest of the British. It was um, uh, Anglo-Iranian oil now, BP. Uh, Iran had thrown out the British, seeing Mossadegh realize that the British were fomenting a coup. So they called on uh, the U.S., and ultimately it would be under Eisenhower that they would overthrow Iran. Yeah. See, I grew up, we all grew up with the story of the CIA coup run by Kermit Roosevelt. As Professor Abraham Yam puts it very eloquently in our film, Kermit didn't speak Persian. 
He was only in Iran for three weeks. He didn't know Iran at all. He was more of a bagman uh, and an adventurist. Uh, and he was allowed to go and take credit for the coup. He wrote books about it. He was on chat shows, talk shows. Uh, he had contracts. He had audiences with the Shah. He did really well out of this coup. And, and Derbyshire, uh, as Ray Fiennes tells us in a brilliant interview in The New Yorker, essentially wanted his curtain call. He wanted to reclaim credit for what was his show. <laughs> in fact, uh, just last week, uh, there was a huge profile of Derbyshire in The uh, in the Guardian by Julian Borger, the foreign affairs editor of The Guardian, uh, went in great detail about his life and his motives. And, uh, uh, and so this is essentially partly professional rivalry. I do all the hard work. Derbyshire was in Iran from the age of 19 as a soldier. He spoke probably better Persian than me. He knew the Iranian street. He really understood the psyche of the Iranian mob, as he says in, 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 the, in the interview in our film. He knows how to turn them, uh, what, pre what buttons to press. Uh, this was a Derbyshire project. Uh, and and as, as we talked about earlier, the British wanted their oil back. This coup was always about oil. It's always about oil. Iraq was about oil. Venezuela is about oil. It's always about oil. As, as the great Robert Fisk said, um, if Iraq's only export was turnips, we wouldn't be there. Uh, and so Derbyshire is the main star of this film. For whatever reason, he didn't appear. We got lucky. We found him. We got lucky. We got Ray Fiennes to be his avatar. Uh, and uh, everything that happened to Coup 53, the, the, the incentive for me making this film is the British have not officially admitted to their key role, their leading role. This was an MI6 coup aided by the CIA, who was dragged in. It was a new organization in 1953. It was the first time it went off campus to play, and it did well. You know, it, it, it was quick, it was cheap, and no Americans were killed. A few hundred Iranians died, but who cares about that? So it emboldened them to do, to do it again. And it was, you know, there's a letter from uh, Alan Dulles to Kermit uh, after he comes back from Iran saying, have a great weekend. Come in on Monday. I've got some other ideas. Uh, obviously, Guatemala coming up. Um, there was one other thing I had to say. Kermit Roosevelt, uh, in, in, in not really being an expert, given the, 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 the playing field to write his book and, 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 and give that interview uh, to as the, the clip that we see in the film where he says, I had a million, I'd spent 60,000. He gives another interview and says, he says, I had 700,000, I only spent 10,000. I wouldn't take anything Kermit Roosevelt says at face value as the truth. Uh, he, he was a fabricator of stuff and a self-aggrandizing guy. And that, I can see, will also not sit well with Derbyshire. You know, Kermit just spewing out different stories about how much money he spent. Derbyshire says in his interview... Uh, we, we, you know, the coup cost 700,000 pounds. I know because I spent it. Yeah, I'd like to bring in a Professor Abrahamian uh, uh, into the conversation again. Professor, this whole issue of the change in administrations in the United States, because the, the nationalization happened uh, during the Truman administration, but uh, President Truman was reluctant uh, to intervene, according to some accounts, it was only when uh, Eisenhower came in and, of course, the Dulles brothers 
uh, uh, as part of his administration that the coup went uh, uh, moved forward as far as the United States was concerned. Could you talk about the change in administrations and also the impact on Iran uh, subsequent to the coup, uh, of course, leading up to eventually the Iranian revolution of 1979? Yes, I mean, the conventional view is, as you said, it's that the, the Truman uh, the Democratic administration was willing to negotiate and deal with Mossadegh. It was the Republican Eisenhower administration that carried out the coup. Um, the trouble is, if you look at the documents, right from the beginning, as soon as Mossadegh was elected prime minister and nationalized, the Americans, as um, at that time, the Truman administration was just as eager to actually get rid of Mossadegh. It was not a, they weren't thinking about a coup. They were thinking of a political means of getting rid of him. In fact, they asked the Shah to dismiss him. They misunderstood the Iranian constitution. The Shah didn't have the power to, to dismiss him. So right from beginning, uh, the Truman administration was really trying to ease the Mossadegh out. Uh, but the interesting thing is, the reason for that was not because they were against coups. It was much more, uh, surprisingly, the Shah's reluctance to carry out a coup. The Shah, right in 51, said that if I go against Mossadegh and oil nationalization, I will delegitimize my monarchy, the whole uh, of my authority. I cannot do that. And he was the one who was very reluctant to carry out the coup. Uh, and the, we have thirty uh, the, seconds, Professor. Right. The the the, the, it, the uh, uh, what the uh, Truman administration really wanted to do was get rid of Mossadegh through the political process. It was only when that failed that uh, the new administration then actually put into effect a military coup. We want to thank you both for being with us. Yervan Abrahamian, retired professor of history at the City University of New York, most recent book, Oil Crisis in Iran, From Nationalism to Coup d'État, and Taghi Amirani, the Iranian filmmaker, director of Coup 53. Everyone should see it. This is the 70th anniversary of the coup in Iran. A very happy birthday to Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. That was Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! speaking to Taghi Amirani, the Iranian filmmaker behind the documentary film Coup 53, and Iranian historian Irvand Abrahamian about the role of the British and American forces behind the scenes of the coup d'etat to restore the Shah to power in 1953. Thank you to Democracy Now! for sharing this audio. You can also catch the program each Monday at 10 a.m. on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855. It is now 7.45 a.m. DigiChew, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming, download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. 
So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. You're listening to 3CR 855am. Today, we have Saul with us to discuss the documentary piece by Democracy Now! about the centieth anniversary of the 1953 coup. Saul is an Iranian union activist in Australia. We will ask him questions about the involvement of the American British governments in the coup, along with the Soviet policy towards Mossadegh and the role that the Tudé Party, the main communist party of the time in Iran, played in supporting the nationalist government of Mossadegh. Saul will also tell us about the lessons of the coup for today as we are approaching the anniversary of Women Life Freedom Uprising. So joining me this morning is Saul, who is an Iranian union activist. Good morning, Saul. How are you? Uh, Good morning to you and to your audiences. I'm well. Thank you very much. That's lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Saul... Thank you for giving me the opportunity. No worries. So, Saul, uh, I just want to ask you, in the first part of the documentary, we heard that the United States and the UK collaborated on the 1953 coup. This is while it's understood that Mossadegh was counting on the favorable response from the US to the nationalization of the Iranian oil industry. So what do you see with this? Um, yeah. Look, uh, it is it is common to, to say that uh, Mossadegh um, uh, kind of was uh, counting on the rivalry between uh, U.S. and the U.K. That is uh, possible and probable, um, but uh, I mean, the fact is that um, politics have changed after Second World War, and Mossadegh was an old politician. Like um, he was, he was in his uh, latest um, uh, part of his life. At it is possible that he misread the situation, mis- uh, what's going on. Uh, from As I see the situation after the Second World War, uh, the dynamic uh, between the US and the uh, UK have changed. You know, before the, before the Second World War, there was a rivalry between different imperialist power to get uh, powers, to get you know, more territory, more... Um, influence and all that sort of stuff but after world war uh, in the empress block uh like in western uh, western empress block uh, there was like a hierarchy like it wasn't like before u.s was going to establish uh itself as as the main empire empire's power and the other uh Western powers like UK were kind of accepting US's uh, US's hegemony, and um, well, the rivalry wasn't there as such. Uh, 
and it was more of a cooperation and collaboration by accepting that there is a hierarchy and U.S. is um, the leading or the main imperialist power and the others um, were kind of following him. So in that sense, yes, I should say that um, if Mossadegh was, um, was counting on this type of rivalry between U.S. and U.K., then he had a miscalculation and misinterpretation of what's going on uh, in the international arena. I see. And in, in Iran, the Comintern line was represented by the Tudor party. What was the Soviet diplomacy in regards to Mossadegh and the nationalization of oil? And how can we explain that in the context of early Cold War? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it kind of makes sense after talking a bit about uh, the um, Western Bloc. We, we we can talk a bit about now the the Communist Bloc. Uh, in that time, period of time, we're talking about the, the time of uh, um, coup in, uh, was like 19 August of um, uh, 1953. That is basically a few months after Estelin passing away, dying. And right one month after the Korean War is finished. And um, USSR, I believe, that um, is kind of in its full capacity of attention with, uh, with the Emperor's bloc uh, in Europe and elsewhere. So it seems that um, the appetite for uh, intervention in Iran was quite low on uh, USSR's behalf. And uh, that's one thing to consider. Um, the other thing that uh, we need to consider is that, yeah, to the party was not the representative of the USSR or Comintern uh, in Iran. And they did not have a very clear picture of who Mossadegh is um, and uh, whose interest Mossadegh's government represents in terms of, uh, you know, class. Um, They had concerns that if Mossadegh is still um, basically representing uh, the kind of feudal, uh, traditional... um, you know, traditional upper class in Iran, or uh, he's kind of uh, representing the modern national bourgeoisie in Iran. And um, it took a while for to the party to to make their mind and analysis about Mossadegh. Basically, Mossadegh, uh, they started uh, supporting Mossadegh's government uh, halfway through. Um, an important event um, that uh, occurred and kind of changed maybe uh, to the party's politics towards Mossadegh's government was uh, an event that happened in 21st of July 1952, uh, which also referred to Iranian um, calendar like Siatir. Um, in there, uh, there was a conflict between Mossadegh and Shah. Uh, Mossadegh wanted some. Um, uh, control over the defense and military uh, ministry 
which was actually for uh, part of uh, the um, uh, prime minister's uh, power in the Iranian Mashruta constitution. But uh, Shah had that in, in his own power by then, and Mossadegh asked, asked for more power to get this constitutional power back to Prime Minister's hand and for Shah to be more of the, you know, kind of um, a symbolic um, um, a symbolic role, taking a symbolic role rather than ruling country. And Shah did not accept Mossadegh to give Mossadegh this power and Mossadegh resigned. Um, and um, for a for short period of time, Shah um, installed a new prime minister for a few days. And then there was an uprising in 21st of July, 1952, by, by the support of a uh, clergy figure then uh, uh, famous then uh, Kashani, Ayatollah Kashani. And then Mossadegh got back to power. After that, two the parties' analysis of the situation changed. I believe that uh, they, they, uh, they, they realized, or the, in their analysis, Mossadegh was up to, you know, changing some old ways of, you know, he was up to changing uh, status quo in Iran. And uh, then they started to support Mossadegh uh, in the last year of uh, his prime ministry uh, term. But um, to be honest, it's not very clear how much influence to the party actually had and how much they could mobilize and how much, uh, if they had intervened uh, on the coup on 19 August or 28th of Mordad, um, uh, they, would, they could change the, the situation. It is, this is not very clear to me. And well, from the literature that I've read, it's not very clear in the literature either that if they have stepped in, um, if they could stop the coup. I see. So how did the Tudor Party position itself in relation to the nationalization of the oil? And how did it matter if the, to the course of events that led up to the 1953 coup? Right. Um, um... From from my understanding, they were supporting um, um, at least. I'm not sure because the, the, that time was just at the beginning of the Cold War, and uh, mm. things weren't as clear as um, was clear, you know, in sixties and seventies. Uh, Soviets and uh, communist blocs' uh, position was obviously. Then, in during the um, Cold War period, was supporting any independent, uh, you know, national government that uh, was trying to play their own role and not be um, under the influence or not be a puppet of uh, the imperialist bloc. Uh, but this wasn't still super clear. These things weren't still super clear in you know, the time of, uh, you know, early 50s that we are talking about. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what was the policy of the Soviet Union and its representative in Iran, uh, the committee representative in Iran to the party. Um, I'm not sure what the exact position was. But from 
um, at least in the last year of Mossadegh's term in, as prime minister, um, uh, they supported Mossadegh. They were in support of uh, nationalizing uh, oil industry in Iran. And um, they would consider, I assume, that this is a step forward. It's like a, a progressive move, although Mossadegh never claimed or no one has ever thought that he's representing um, the working class um, interests and interests of working class. But um, yeah, it was clear that uh, at least in the end, Twitter party was supporting uh, nationalization of oil and was supporting um, uh, Mossadegh's government. Specifically, uh, Mossadegh kind of rejected the, the consortium or consortium that um, was uh, uh, proposed uh, by Eng English and US. Mossadegh did not accept that. And I believe that that, that played a part um, in Twitter party supporting Mossadegh furthermore. Um, but uh, yeah, if the if the Tudor party could stop the, the coup or not, it's not really clear. What is clear uh, to me, uh, or as at least uh, the way that I understand the situation, is that um, from the beginning till um, the middle of the Mossadegh's uh, time, as I mentioned in CT, which was July 21st, 1952, the religious figures and uh, the religious leaders were supporting Mossadegh. It is clear that by the time of the coup, they were not supporting Mossadegh. So they changed uh, side. Um, they And the figure of uh, these religious, um, um, with these traditional forces, uh, who was Ayatollah Kashani, became actually uh, the head of parliament after the coup. So um, what I can say is that what is clear of is that uh, Mossadegh lost uh, his, um, you know, religious uh, supporters or like uh, um, more conservative supporters and they switched side from Mossadegh to Shah's side. And uh, that could be uh, kind of um, something that we know these days, that, um, uh, yeah, if they hadn't changed side, maybe the coup wasn't, uh, couldn't go ahead. The coup went ahead with, um, with religious uh, supporters of Mossadegh, with mullahs uh, and um, the bazaar, bazaris, were supporting, they changed side, um, and um, that much is clear that um, they had back then. Iranian society was very, uh, very religious, so that and they had mullahs and I mean clergies had a um, um, hegemony, cultural hegemony in in, uh, in Iran, and them changing side, I believe that had um, a defective effect on Mossadegh's government. I see. And uh, so unfortunately, so we're running out of time, but I just want to get yeah. one last question from you. So sure. we are very close to, yep. 
So very close to the first anniversary of the Women Life Freedom Movement in Iran, which was triggered by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in government custody over the observation of the willing rules on 16 September 2023. So that's about 10 days away. What analogies can you see between the two events, with, if anything? And do you think if there are lessons to be learned from the 1953 coup for the contemporary struggles of the Iranian people for justice and freedom? Right. Yeah, thank you. I think, um, well, the, many things have changed since then, like we're talking about uh, 70 years ago. But it is very interesting for me uh, when... Uh, when I, I, um, you know, in the last year, uh, Iran have been through a turmoil of events, as as you mentioned, after Massa's death in custody. Um, we went through like the longest uprising um, after revolution, after 1979 revolution, and uh, there were like a lot of movements and changes in in political uh, groupings and stuff. Um, one thing that's um, kind of reviewing the history um, struck me kind of was that um, I can see some similarities. And if if you read the um, the coup, 1953 coup, in like two lines, if you want to tell a, a linear story of what happened uh, in then, it was like uh, Mossadegh and... Um, religious leadership got together and went through the process of nationalizing oil. Then uh, the, the religious part of the leadership left Mossadegh and to the party uh, got closer to Mossadegh. Um, and the religious part basically moved towards the, the, um, uh, the monarchy and teamed up with monarchy, and that ended up uh, with to to the coup. Uh, so um, the simple analysis of that simple story, one two line story, is that the progressive forces kind of got together, and the uh, reactionary forces got closer to together in in the course of a struggle. In there, I I think I see the same kind of pattern in the last year's events in Iran, uh, in the sense that, you uh, you know, through the struggle and moves in the struggle, you could see that um, um, kind of an um, uh, invisible uh, string, if you like, uh, connects the reactionary forces together. Um, the reactionary forces, uh, in this situation, where are are actually the uh, Islamic regime, the, the the religious regime in Iran, in one hand, and the other hand, the Shah's son um, Reza Pahlavi, uh, who is um, in exile out of Iran, despite the very um, uh, different rhetoric that they have and very. A conflicting rhetoric that they have. Uh, it is interesting to see how the similarities. For instance, uh, you see that Reza Pahlavi, uh, the son of the previous king in Iran, praises Sepah, the, the revolutionary god, and the head figure or the figure of revolutionary god, Qasem Soleimani. He basically praises that. And he, um, um, 
A says a lot of good things about them. On the other hand, the religious regime of Iran appeals to the, uh, the rhetoric of nationalism uh, as much as monarchs do. Um, so you see the similarities, specifically when it comes to um, oppressed nations in Iran, like Kurds, Baluchis, Arabs, um, they, they all talk the same language and um, um, they get connected to each other. I, I believe that this is something that uh, people in Iran should keep in mind and, um, and learn from the past. I see. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sal. It's been really lovely having you on our show. Thank you very much for giving the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Sal, who is an Iranian union activist in Australia, speaking um, about the 1953 coup in Iran and how the Tudeh party played a role in the nationalization of oil as well as, as the ensuing developments in the lead up to the coup. Um, he mentioned that, that as the coup shows, the clergy and monarchy, two forces that have come to clash in the history of Iran, um, it can also unite to protect the vested interest of their, of their economic classes. Um, and now we'll just go to a song. A, B, C, 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 Cops, courts, council, complex corruption, cook, coke, crack, rock, coca cola, combustion, CO2, colonial, Chris Columbus, Castro climates, condos crowded, cyberspace, cityscape, concrete caskets, closed circuit cameras, clear channels, conservative chiefs, closeted cowards, conspiracy continues, controlled collapse, Colin Cheney, Condoleezza, collected cash, click, clack. Was constant cash controls communication, company content controls Christian crusaders, compass controls cops, clubs, content concussions, controls countries, competence controls colleges, consumes complete colored continents, Canada's cannibal colonist conquest, crown commonwealth, conglomerate complex, condemn, contest, colonizer creeds, poet John Cherokee, Chippewa Creek, Cayuga, pump correct, check Capital can't comply. Chaotic communism's common sense conspire. Cityscape cancer, condominium cocks, containing corrupt cops, cooking crack rocks, child casualties, cannibals, click clack, handcuffs, cells, corpses, caskets, classes clashing, capital crashing, civilization collapsing, cracking, criminal corruption, corporates cunning, cancerous consumption, chaos coming, catastrophe. Colonized conditioning, coercive culture, compels complicity, concrete cages containing cravings, Coca-Cola, cigarettes, cocaine, caving, catch crazy, chain store, credit cards, criminalized communities, class war, cop cars, computerized children, cock comas, climate changing collectively, 
colder. Cannabis colonists, cannibal conquest. Culture contains crumbs, come clean, confess. Carbon clouds, carcinogenic complex. Conservative cataclysm connecting concepts. Carrot and stick, cause and effect. Condition, cattle can't come correct. Clicking senses clearly. Corporate citizens cutting premiums off, shocking crayons, cannabucha, concentration, chakras, and cannabis creator contained it. Close eyes, contemplate cosmic creation, conspire, collaborate, catalyze communication. Communing creation, collapsing corporations, communities creating. Warangan Camp Ceremony. And that was Warringung there. The previous song was Test Their Logic. You're on 3CR, 855 AM. You can also uh, grab the app and listen to 3CR wherever you are on Community Radio Plus. So download the Community Radio Plus today. Uh, Now, we will be speaking to 
Uh, Dr. Matthew Sussex, Associate Professor of Griffith Asia Institute, Griffith University, Queensland, and Visiting Fellow at Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at Australian National University, discussing Russia's future and what does the future hold for the Wagner Group with the death of Yugi Prigozhin uh, recently, and what is Russia's influence around the world? To answer all these questions, we welcome Dr. Matthew Sussex on the line now. Thanks for having me, Patrick. How are you this morning, Matthew? I'm well, thank you. Very good, Matthew. So uh, for listeners out there, um, you can catch um, uh, Matthew's uh, article on The Conversation uh, titled Putin Cooked His Own Goose. Matthew, what do you mean by this title? And just give us a, a bit of background in, into the situation in Russia. Um, well, it's interesting that uh, for a long time, Vladimir Putin has kept his uh, inner circle basically at each other's throats. Um, and uh, and has kept himself above the fray when it comes to um, when it comes to potential challenges to his leadership. He's been the sort of uh, you know um, uh, eternal czar, if you like. And by becoming uh, sort of directly involved in this uh, this revolt by Prigozhin, um, which was largely defense, directed at the defense ministry mm. in Russia, um, I think what Putin has done now is perhaps. You know, given some of the elites around him a bit of an incentive to think about, you know, life after Putin, that perhaps, you know, they don't want to necessarily take the fall um, for, for this guy's mistakes. And, and he certainly does carry out a regular series of, uh, you know, purges of others hmm. uh, whenever, you know, something that Putin uh, decides is going to happen goes wrong. So uh, he's always been blameless so far. Um, and I think perhaps that that tide is starting to turn. Yeah, definitely. Do you think citizens in in Russia, um, if just out of curiosity, are they coming to you saying, "Hey, we are looking to revolt against Putin"? We do see Alexei Navalny is still in prison uh, for his charges that they're describing as being fraud charges and espionage. Do you do you see uh, the the citizens revolting in some form? Well, look, I actually think it will be very unlikely to see a, uh, a sort of popular uprising against Putin. Mm. Uh, I think there's a lot of apathy against uh, towards him and towards politics uh, in general in Russia because it just doesn't pay to be interested in it. Uh, and when you are, you know, bad things tend to happen. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, if, if uh, you know, there, there's support for Navalny, it tends to be fairly small, um, about you know ten percent or so, mm. uh, which really isn't enough, especially considering the the things that the Russian state can do to citizens to to stop them from mobilising and protesting. So, I think that if you know Putin is to meet a sticky end, uh, you know it might well be through uh, accidentally through a window <laughs> or in his sleep um, as a result of uh, you know those who are closer to power rather than those who. Uh, sort of set aside from it, and and by that I mean basically all the Russian population. Yes, yes, and it's it's interesting, fascinating conversation point there, given the fact that I think he saw what happened in Iraq and didn't want to see the same fate that he saw with Saddam Hussein. Also, Robert Mugabe was uh, famous for having to quit his position, and uh, we're seeing Zimbabwe had a democratic election. Uh, just held in the last couple of weekends. So hopefully in the, in the coming future, Russia could have a similar um, situation. Yeah, look, um, I, I wouldn't hold out hope through elections, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it's certainly true that um, it's certainly true that, that Putin has always feared uh, what has happened to uh, strong dictators. Um, Gaddafi is another good example. Mm. 
um, as, as well as the sort of colour revolutions that spread across what we call, uh, you know, the, the former communist states, particularly in Ukraine, um, but also in places like Georgia as well. And, and he's been very frightened, I think, that, you know, one day, uh, you know, one day it'll be Kiev and the next day it'll be Moscow. Mm. Um, and, and so he's developed quite a sophisticated network to try and stop that happening from the general public. It's just whether or not he can keep his Kremlin clans um, at each other's throats rather than at his. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's an interesting uh, point you come to that because Yevgeny Prigozhin was looking like the uh, instigator of um, of causing some sort of coup, and as we know, his death only happened a few weeks ago. Uh, given Prigozhin and the Wagner Group, who are the uh, the Russian equivalent to Blackwater, um, what, what do you what do you make of the organization's future now, and also the influence around the world? We see they have uh, operations happening in Africa at the moment, Mali. Niger and Central African Republic. Give us an idea of that influence. Uh, well, Wagner is actually quite useful to the Russian state in that it, it acts as uh, its sort of de facto agent. Um, and it's interesting that if, if you look at places like Mali and uh, the work they do uh, propping up uh, dictators in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, the response from uh, the leadership there is, well, you know, we see no difference between Wagner and, and the Russian armed forces. Um, and, and what Wagner does there is it provides training, it provides security, it provides propaganda, um, and, uh, and will also do things like help fight rebels. Um, and in exchange for that, it, it basically wins three times. It gets money uh, for doing that from the country in question. It gets um, the ability to import weapons uh, mm. from Russia to arm their militaries. Um, and they also get quite lucrative contracts when it comes to resources. So oil wells, uh, gas fields, diamond mines, gold mines, and so forth. So I think Putin would be unwilling to see Wagner's influence in Africa completely fragment. But whether that means that Wagner carries on as it is, just under new management, uh, or with a, you know, potentially a different private military company running it, um, is something we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, definitely. It was reported on Friday that Russia vetoed a UN resolution to extend sanctions and allowing uh, uh, experts to assess the use of foreign fighters in Mali. Uh, what, what do you make of that resolution? We see Russia veto a lot of these type of uh, uh, resolutions in the UN General Assembly uh, on a frequent uh, basis. What do you make of that? Oh, well, look, you know, uh, Wagner uh, operatives, as well as, you know, others attached to, to different military companies have been active in Africa for quite a long time. And um, they've been, frankly, responsible for absolutely horrendous human rights abuses, mm. uh, from, you know, sexual uh, crimes to murders um, and, and, and mass killings. Um, so it, it's really no surprise that the Russians would veto that, given that they are uh, fairly heavily invested in, in propping up those regimes. Yeah. Do you, do you see a situation, you know, China, China, for example, have been a, a massive player in this as well by providing a country like Senegal, for example, massive economic support and also infrastructure support. I think we saw the wrestling stadium get built there, Matthew. It was, it was yep. one of, it was quite of interest. Do you see another type of, you know, uh, road belt initiative uh, very similar to what China do, but for from a Russian standpoint, happening in the future for these African nations? Yeah, it's interesting the, the way that those two countries go about it. I mean, the Chinese government tends to be very upfront about it um, and says, you know, this is economic aid, 
um, you know, investment in infrastructure, also infrastructure that helps benefit, you know, local leaders. Mm. Um, so, you know, they're fairly pragmatic about it. Uh, the way the Russians do it is, uh, I think, you know, with an, with an attempt at plausible deniability to say, well, we're using organisations that aren't, or organisations are being used that aren't necessarily uh, organs of the Russian state. Um, but nonetheless, we benefit from that. So I think the, the Russian approach tends to be fairly transactional and fairly short-term, mm. uh, but also with the goal of, of very much weakening and undermining the West. Mm. Um, whereas the Chinese approach tends to be, I think, a little bit more long-term in terms of you know, embedding Chinese, particularly economic leverage, uh, within those types of countries, within those countries, um, and also doing things like, uh, you know, uh, opening up uh, resource extraction so that they can find really long-term deals uh, to buy things, uh, like iron ore, for instance, is a big thing that the Chinese are looking to, to diversify on. Uh, the Russians more interested in things like energy, more interested in things like precious metals, and adopting, I think, probably, as I say, a slightly more short-term approach. Mm, yeah, it's it's a fascinating sense of things. It, that's more. It's now you put it in that context, Matthew. That's scarier that China are using it more from an economic economic point of view because you know those countries have got to owe money to a nation, and it's never good owing money to anyone, and especially a, a country that could turn on to you militarily. Well, I mean, they become they become part of China's uh, you know network of, uh, of of potential suppliers of things that it needs. Mm. Um, and in, in a way, you know, it's, it's it's smart politics by the Chinese because they don't want to be beholden on any one country for something that is vital to their national development, whether it's oil, whether it's gas, uh, you know, whether it's, it's iron ore to make steel, and you know, that obviously has implications for us here in Australia, given that we're leading exporters of iron ore to, to China. Uh, so I think what China is doing here is uh, effectively setting up a you know a, a global network for. Uh, source diversification mm. for, for the types of things that it needs to or things it will need, um, particularly in case you know competition with the West heats up uh, and it becomes potentially unable to access some of those. It, it has other options. Yeah, definitely. And and talking about the West in that space, Australia. What what's Australia's role when it comes to the West African region and also just uh, also with Russia as well. Uh, we've seen the the embassy situation occur where they've they bought the land back for what was going to be a development of the new Russian embassy uh, right near the federal parliament. Uh, also, there's been a big support for Ukraine, of course. But also, has there been much talk about? Uh, and, and sorry if this is a bit of a double barrel, barrel question, Matthew. But is there been a bit of a talk about you know helping Russians who actually want to leave Russia and, and come to the West? Yeah. I mean, look, the relationship between Australia and Russia is, is virtually non-existent. Mm. Um, there's a very, very small embassy that we have in Moscow, um, and the Russians keep kicking out our diplomats, <laughs> mainly because we keep kicking out theirs. Yes. The difference is that uh, they have a fairly large presence and uh, are fairly active trying to recruit, you know, people from uh, the Defence Forces and the security agencies, so, so we kick them out on a regular basis. Um uh, and it's to the point now where really, you know, Australia and Russia are, are economic competitors. We export the same stuff. So uh, whether it's gas or iron or coal um, or wheat, um, uh-huh. there, there's not a lot of basis for, for a sort of lessening of tension, really. Uh, particularly, of course, as the, the Ukraine crisis goes on. 
uh, where Australia has been, I think, very you know much on the front foot in terms of condemning what Russia is doing as, as effectively imperial expansion in the 21st century. Mm. You now using using the um, the tools of the 19th century to uh, to achieve territorial gains, you know, in the 20 uh, 2100s. Um, in terms of you know sort of welcoming uh, Russians who might want to flee, a lot of Russians don't have any option to leave. Mm. Um, they just don't simply have the, the wherewithal, um, and it's not simply that you can rock up to the U.S. embassy or the Australian consulate. Sorry, the Australian Embassy in Moscow, and, and say I want asylum. Um, it, it doesn't really work that way, and you know their ability to get out of the country uh, is quite difficult, of course, if they don't have passports, um, and if they don't have the ability to, to get into a neighbouring country like Kazakhstan. Mm. So the ones that flee Russia tend to be those that already have the financial wherewithal to do so, um, and they don't tend to want to come to countries like Australia. They they want to go to countries like Turkey. Uh, that are pretty close to uh, to Russia, um, where they can often, if they work in, in you know, uh, like the IT industry, can basically plug in from there and continue their jobs and their businesses uh, remotely. Mm. Um, so I think there's an enormous amount of call for us to, uh, to to welcome Russians. That said, of course, there are plenty who, who are suffering persecution, um, and if there are a way to, there were a way to, you know, to to host those people, then certainly something we should look at. But the first priority, I think, should be um, helping refugees from uh, from Ukraine, you know, where there mm. have been enormous numbers of people displaced and made homeless. Um, and uh, and frankly, yeah, I think that should be our first priority. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's very uh, kind words of you there, Matthew. We've, got, we've run out of time, uh, but thanks very much for speaking to us this morning. Uh, it was a great chat and We'll be watching this space very closely. My pleasure, Patrick. Thanks so much. That's okay. All good. And that was Dr. Matthew Sussex there, Associate Professor at Griffith Asia Institute, Griffith University, Queensland, Visiting Fellow and Strategic Defence Studies at the Centre at Australian National University. That was a great chat to listen to. Um, very interesting, Patrick. Yeah, it's a watch this space moment, I think, our scenario. So. Awesome. Um, Thanks, guys. As as uh, Matthew's still on the line with us, um, so he's hearing us uh, live there. But that's the live, the joys of live radio scenario. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. No worries. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was our show for this week. Um, we've had a range of um, topics, um, domestic and international, um, today. And just to round up, uh, just before we go, um, just letting you know that there's an emergency town hall meeting in um, the town hall on the 9th of September, which is on Saturday, and it'll be at uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon to 4 o'clock, and it'll be about climate emergency, and there will be many speakers speaking about climate action, and... That's all for our show. So if you want to listen back to the show, you can on the podcast, 3cr.org.au. Go to podcasts, go to breakfast, go to W, go to Wednesday Breakfast Scenario. You can listen to all the podcasts from 2020 to now. Yes. um, Yes, we'll all see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. 
While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.